Can you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 15, please? Genesis chapter 15. Continuing our series through this section of Genesis. It's on page 12. I'll lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that by faith we have received your promises and thank you for the great and precious promises they are indeed. Father, we pray that as we uh, come to your word, uh, we pray that you help us to see more clearly uh, how good you have been to us. Um, And we pray that you help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A covenant is a binding agreement or treaty. It is based on promises and there is often, though not always, a sign or a ceremony that seals the making of this covenant. What do you think is the most common covenant that we have in our society, do you think? Anyone? Marriage! Thank you very much. Right? In marriage, a man and a woman promise themselves to each other as long as they both shall live. The promises are the basis of the covenant. And there is a giving of a ring or an exchange of rings as signs of the marriage covenant. Now, in our passage today, we're looking at a covenant that God made with Abram. Now, those of you who have been with us for the last few weeks will know we've been looking at the life of Abram through the book of Genesis. In Genesis 12, God called Abram to move to a new land, made him great promises, promised him many descendants, promised him the land of Canaan as a place where his descendants would live, promised great blessings to him there. In fact, that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abram eventually went to the land that God showed him and God did bless him there. Abram endangered the promises when he left the land to go to Egypt, when he put his wife in danger, when he recklessly offered to divide up his land with a nephew, but each time God saved the day. And last week we saw how he came back from a great military victory and he was met by two kings. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, king of peace, and the evil king of Sodom. King of Sodom offered him great wealth, but he said no. God's blessing was far more important than the immediate multiplication of wealth. And he chose to honor Melchizedek, the king priest who at the very least prefigures the Lord Jesus, rather than the king of Sodom. Now, let me ask you, Did Abram miss out? Was he to be pitied because he gave up the chance to be in the Forbes 100 list of the richest men in the ancient Near East? Was he silly to pass off the opportunity for great, great wealth? Would he look back later and regret this? I wonder if some of those things have been going through Abram's mind because, you see, God didn't seem to be 
doing what he said he'd do. God promised to make him a great nation, but now he's getting older and still doesn't have a child. Has he given up this possibility of wealth, for, or even greater wealth than he has, for something that's not going to be fulfilled anyway? Could he still trust the God who called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans all those years ago? Or had it been a terrible mistake? Well, God speaks to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. I know many people in our congregations who have made sacrifices to serve the Lord. I know people who have given up months of their time to devote themselves to God's service right here, free of charge. I know people who have given up many hours of leisure time to serve God among us and, and beyond our congregations. I know people who have taken massive pay cuts and status cuts to be at jobs where they can serve God better. I know people who are sacrificing what could have been part of their further education for the sake of ministry. I know people who suffer the anger and disapproval of their families because they belong to Christ. Among us. Will they miss out? Well, in a sense, yes. They'll miss out on the things they're sacrificing. That's, that's sacrifice, isn't it? But they will not miss out in an ultimate sense, will they? Because God's promises are far bigger and far better than anything that we give up. God said to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. If Abraham was afraid of reprisals from the enemies he made in the last chapter, God would be his shield. God would look after him. If Abraham was afraid, he'd regret giving up the riches of Sodom. God would be his reward. His reward would be very great. But Abraham finds it a little bit hard to believe. Just a little bit. Because remember, God's promised him all these descendants and he doesn't even have one. And and, and so he answers God in in, in verse 2. Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. Will you give me more stuff? Can't pass it on to anyone. He's worried, isn't he? He's, his face is a bit shaky. But, but God's word is secure. And God speaks to him again in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. God had made a promise. God would keep his promise. Can I just ask, is there anyone here who's feeling a, bit, a little bit shaky in their faith? Well, you're finding it a little bit hard to keep trusting God when you're not seeing any of the blessings. God has promised us eternal life under his blessing and rule with all his people in the new creation. I wonder, is anyone who's finding it a little bit hard to trust God for that 
in the midst of your current circumstances? Well, you know, God knew what Abram needed. He needed a visible sign that God was going to fulfill his promise. Something tangible that he could look at and say, yep, God's made me a promise. And so God took Abram outside and he said to him in verse 15, no, verse 5, he said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now, if Abram was in 21st century KL, that would have been a bit disappointing. My daughter found two stars in the sky the other night. And I think they were actually the same one. But just imagine you could get rid of all the pollution. And look up the sky on a clear night. And millions of stars in space. You just can't look at how many there are. because it's just And God says to Abram at the end of verse 5, So shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. The God who created all the stars was perfectly capable of creating offspring for Abram. Even though it looked unlikely. And he promised that he would. And Abram's response was the only right one. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham saw the sign, he heard the promise, and he believed the Lord. And when he believed the Lord, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. God considered Abram as righteous because he had believed his promise. Doesn't mean he didn't struggle. Well, he saw he struggled, didn't he? That's why he asked the question at the beginning. When Abraham heard the promise again, he trusted. He was fully convinced that God could do what he promised. And when Abraham believed God, God considered him righteous. Now, why does Abraham's being considered righteous matter? How is it important as far as the story is concerned? Well, we know from the New Testament that to be considered righteous means to be justified. That is, to be declared not guilty of sin. To be declared right with God. See, God had promised Abram land, many descendants, blessing, back in Genesis 12. He was going to fulfill that in Israel's history. But remember that Israel's history is the fulfillment of that. That's just a model, isn't it, of the reality, the real kingdom. Like the little house that the architect builds, you know, the little one, before he constructs the real thing. The real fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, of which those things were pointing, was, was in the Lord Jesus. And in Jesus we have the better promises, the real promised land, the new heaven and new earth, being with God and his people, and all who belong to him, enjoying his blessing and rule forever. And to receive those promises, we need to be part of God's spiritual people. And to be part of God's spiritual people in that way, first we have to be justified. We have to be declared righteous, not guilty, before the judge. Otherwise, we wouldn't be given eternal life. We would be, we'd be condemned to eternal punishment. Now, most of the time, in this part of the Bible, we see how God is dealing with the setting up of the model. The earthly kingdom that, that foreshadows the heavenly one. 
the ultimate reality. And so everything in ter- talking, talking in terms of Canaan, in terms of the land, in terms of the descendants of Abraham. But just occasionally, we get a glimpse towards the reality to which this, this model is pointing. And here's one occasion. See, it just lifts off the page, doesn't it, that verse. Abram was, like you and me, a sinner. We've seen examples of his sin already. Left the promised land when he was supposed to stay there, lied to Pharaoh, endangered his wife. Sinner like us. And like us, he needed to be saved from his sin. That's the spiritual reality. And we know that the way to be saved for, for us is to, to trust in the Lord Jesus. To believe faith. Not like we, we sang that just now. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. See, at this point, it's no longer about shadows and models and pointing forward. For us here, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we, we have the reality. We have the word of God in the gospel which tells us that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and that those who trust in Jesus have been justified, made right with God, declared not guilty by faith. God declares us righteous if we belong to Jesus. Because as far as God is concerned, he counts us together with Jesus. All our sins transferred to him, he's paid them all. All his goodness shared with us and we enjoy his life. Like Abraham, we believe God and it's credited to us as righteousness. So here we've got Abram that glimpsed beyond the model to the reality. Have we just lost all all the icons, have we? Okay. So then no one will mind if I it's a bit hot, isn't it? So, okay. Right. Anyone yeah, that's, that's that's all. Okay. The promise of descendants is not the only promise that God reiterates to Abram. God renews his promise, not just for the descendants, but he renews his promise to give him the land. And he does this by signing, as it were, a very solemn covenant. We read about this second, this is the whole second section, uh, in verses 7 onwards. God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Right? Reiterates the promise of land. Once again, Abram's got a question. Verse 8. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How do I know that this promised land will be mine? Well, just like God gave them a tangible sign to Abram about his numerous descendants, he also gives a sign about this next promise. Verse 9 and 10. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now what's going on here? Well, scholars think this cutting of the animals is part of a covenant-making ritual. Uh, And we know this must be right because verse 18 says that God made a covenant with Abram. 
Now, when two parties, one of them make a covenant back in those days, they didn't use lawyers. All right, that's good, isn't it? All right, uh, they didn't use lawyers. Um, they didn't write legal contracts like they do nowadays. Instead, they cut animals in half. Instead of getting your throat being cut, the animal gets cut. Oh, sorry. And what they would do is they'd walk between the, the animals. Right? As if to say, may this happen to me if I break the promise that I'm making today. So God commanded Abram to bring the animals for a covenant-making ceremony. Now, if you're very smart and you're well-schooled in Old Testament, like our all college students are doing their exams tomorrow, you'd have noticed that all the animals mentioned here are animals for the various sacrifices that God was later going to bring in. Right? They're sacrificial animals. It's a hint that the covenant was going to point forward to a sacrifice. But it wouldn't be straightforward. There'd be some threat to the covenant. Because even as Abram's preparing for this covenant, there, there are problems. Verse 11, And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. At this stage, we don't yet quite know yet what this represents, but it seems to be some kind of threat to the covenant. And then, God puts Abram to sleep. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This is a, this is a scary kind of sleep. It's, it's deep, but uneasy. And then the Lord tells Abram the reason for the darkness, the meaning of the threat. You see, glory is not going to come immediately. First, there'll be, there'll be suffering and pain. That's why there's all this uneasiness. Verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. There's 400 years of trouble ahead for Abram's descendants. 400 years away from the land of blessing, under foreign oppression. No wonder the sleep's got an element of deep darkness about it. But then, verse 14, I will bring judgment upon the nation they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. God will bring justice in the end to the nation. He will rescue Abram's descendants. They'll be blessed. And you know, of course, that's exactly what happened, didn't it? Abram's descendants lived in Egypt for 400 years. They became slaves there. They were under the Egyptians. But in the end, God rescued them. Brought them up out of Egypt. Gave them the land he promised Abram. And they left Egypt with many possessions. Yet we know that this rescue was still a model. It was a model that pointed forward to the even greater rescue that was to come. Because we, and need all God's people, had for the longest time been enslaved to the flesh and the world and the devil. Under the deep darkness of sin. Facing the wrath of God. But through Jesus, God brought about the great rescue. By his death on the cross in our place, he saved us from our sins and all our consequences. And by rising again, he's brought us new life. And we live under his blessings forever. That's what the rescue from Egypt was pointing forward to. And this dream, in turn, is pointing forward to the rescue from Egypt. See, so God at this stage is setting up the model 
that's going to point to the reality. Abram Abram himself won't be affected by the oppression. Verse 15, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. As far as the model goes, it's, it's as good as anyone can ask for. And then God does something that he actually very rarely does. He gives an explanation for what he's about to do. And he tells us, Abram, why his descendants are going to wait so long for their rescue. Verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, there were already people living in the land that God promised Abram. And God wasn't simply going to kick them out for no reason. God wasn't going to remove them as a matter of convenience because he wanted his people there. God is just. He would remove them when their sin was complete. When their sin was so bad that it was indeed the right time to do so. And he would do so in just judgment upon them as a people. Just like he was going to kick out his own people when their sin was no longer tolerable in the land. Friends, God is just. Sometimes he delays bringing his justice to sit on a situation, but it's only because he's going to bring perfect justice in the end. Most of the time, he doesn't actually tell us what he's doing. Most of the time, he doesn't tell us why he's delaying in particular ways. If God hadn't told Abraham, we would have had no idea why there was this delay. But we can trust him to do the right thing. And in the end, he'll be seen to be right. Abram's family had to wait for their inheritance. And we have to wait for ours. Sometimes we wonder, don't we, when is God going to bring in the new creation? When will he give us our inheritance? Why the delay? Well, there are at least two reasons that God gives us. In 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, he says he is giving time for people to repent. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, verse 9, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should repent, but that all should reach repentance. Most of us are aware of that verse. God wants people to repent, and so delays the judgment to give people a chance to do so. However, There is another aspect to it as well. In Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10 to 11, the Apostle John is given a vision of heaven. And there they are, souls of those who have been killed for the gospel. And they cry out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who go on the earth? And they were told, they each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Wait a little longer until the number of their brothers should be complete. For, last time we had this problem, one of, one of these was the culprit. So why don't we leave these two off? Sorry guys. Is that alright? We'll just see. I can't remember which one. One of these was the culprit. That was the culprit now. Okay, that's fine. 
Okay, now, why does there need to be a certain number of Christians killed for the faith? I think it's the same as with Abraham, isn't it? God is waiting for an accumulation of guilt. God is waiting for human guilt, for the killing of his people to become so bad that he will rightly bring it to an end by destroying the world. Then and only then will the new creation be brought in. And just like he waited for the Amorites, for their sin to mount up, he's patiently waiting now. Back to Genesis 15. We don't really know if Abram's still dreaming at the end of verse 16. He might have woken up, actually, because we have a real time marker again. See, the sun that was setting when he fell asleep, he's actually well and truly set now. The sun has gone down, verse 17, and it was dark. And in the darkness, Abram sees an amazing thing. He sees, verse 17, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces. Where it says fire pot, think of thunder. Right? Thunder, you know the one that makes your party in the mamak shops? There's fire on the inside, you put the thing on, you put the chapati on the inside, that kind of thing. Okay, there's a fire pot. Naan, naan, sorry, naan. Yes, you make naan inside it. Thank you. Okay, there's fire pot, right? Torch, don't think the battery operated kind of torch like that, right? Think Olympic type torch, lots of fire coming out. Alright? So, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch is passing through the pieces. That is lots of smoke, lots of fire. Now, when Abram's descendants were rescued from slavery in Egypt, they were going to stand before God, would be rescued years later, they would stand before God at a mountain in Sinai. And in Exodus 19 verse 8, it says that Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. So you see, smoke and fire symbolize the presence of God. God was making a covenant with Abram. But who walked between the cut animals? Smoking fire pot and the fiery torch. Only that. Abram didn't walk. It's like God is the one who walked between the animals. God signed the covenant treaty. And didn't even ask Abram to sign as well. You see that? Abram didn't what? In our terms, he didn't sign. Because there's nothing, nothing really for Abram to do. This is an unconditional covenant. It's not a covenant with mutual obligations. This is a, this is a fully one-sided thing. God made promises to Abram. Abram believed God. God counted him righteous. And on that basis, he made this one-sided agreement with Abram. All the obligations are on God's side. None on Abram's. God made the promises, and God's responsibility was to make sure that they came to pass. And what are the terms of the covenant? Well, verse 18. To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Kedmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gilgashites, and the Jebusites. God, God had promised him this land before, but now he is sealing his promise with this covenant. Signing on the dotted line. This land will be yours in 400 years time. He's absolutely committed to fulfilling it. Now, brothers and sisters, as we've looked at this passage, 
we've seen the patience and the faithfulness of God in spite of Abraham's weak faith. Abraham believed, but still questioned, wondered how God would do what he was going to do. And God didn't explain to him until God gave him a sign. Something tangible to look at. To remember his promises and trust in him. Showed him the stars and gave him his word. And he gave Abram this visual display, a tangible sign that shows the reality of God's promises. And when he saw the sign, when he heard God's promise, Abram believed God, really and truly. And God credited to him his righteousness. Now, what about us? Where do we look to see the reality of God's promise? And where, what sign does God give us that he really will keep his word? Friends, sign and reality come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that was the reality that the entire Old Testament was pointing forward to. He really did die for our sins. He really did take our punishment. We really can be declared righteous by faith in Him. And yet... It is also the sign. He is the one tangible thing that we can hook our faith on. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just something, some abstract metaphorical thing, metaphysical thing rather. It's not just something in the spirit realm. It's not just promise. It's a tangible reality of history. It actually happened in our world. He was seen and touched and heard by our own people. We have historical evidence for it. It's a real thing. And so, friends, like Abram looked to the stars, we look to the Lord Jesus. When we need to be reminded of the reality of God's promise, we are to remember Him. Abram saw the stars. He believed God. It was credited to Him as righteousness. And we look to the cross and believe God. And it's credited to us as righteousness as well. And the same applies to the covenant. God made a covenant with Abram. He promised to give them the land as his presence passed between the sacrificial animals and we have a covenant with God, a new covenant. Very different from the covenant God made with Israel at the time of Moses, but very much like the covenant with Abram. In fact, you could even say it's the same covenant, just bigger. God was promising Abram the model and he's promising us the reality. God is promising Abraham the land of Israel for his descendants. He's promising us forgiveness of sin, eternal life with him in glory. Abraham's covenant was ratified by the presence of God, walking among the broken sacrificial animals. And the new covenant is ratified by the presence of God in a man sacrificed for us on a cross. The new covenant is in his blood. If you thought God was serious about this covenant with Abram, and he was, we have a covenant that's even more secure, if that is possible. The sign of the covenant is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross on our behalf. Now, we could leave it there. 
Because on this side of the cross and resurrection, at one level, there is no need for any more signs. The reality is tangible enough. And it's come in Jesus. The new covenant has been ratified in Jesus' blood. The reality is the sign. There's no better sign than that. And yet, and yet God knows that we are weak and frail. And while we are waiting for the final fulfillment of God's promises, while we're waiting for Jesus to come again to rule the world, God in his mercy has granted us two other things that can help us. Things that can function as signs in a secondary way. Tangible, visible pointers that speak of the reality that comes from God's promise. Sometimes these are called sacraments. Word just means sign. Now the death of Jesus is the real sacrament. Jesus is the ultimate and perfect sign of God's promises. But these, these two secondary signs are a gift from God that keep on pointing them, pointing us to him. The first one is baptism. Baptism points to a new life that we have in Christ. Points to the fact that we believed in Jesus. When we believed in Jesus, we died with him and we were raised with him. Points to the new life that we have through Jesus' death and resurrection. We experienced that last week, didn't we? When James was baptized. And the second of that is the Lord's Supper. It is a sign of the death of Christ itself. It reminds us of his body broken for us. His blood that was shed for us on the cross. Speaks of the fellowship we have with each other and with him. Helps us look forward to the heavenly banquet when he returns. Now friends, these signs in and of themselves are just signs. Unlike the death of Jesus, but like the stars in the sky, they don't have any intrinsic power. Like stars in the sky in themselves are nothing. Everyone sees stars. Not everyone gets God's promises. Water itself is nothing. Everyone bathes in water. Not everyone is born again. Bread and wine in themselves are nothing. Everyone eats bread and most people drink wine. Well, many people drink wine. and don't get any spiritual benefit out of it at all. What's the difference? The difference is the word of God and faith. When God speaks his word and he says, Look at this and remember to trust me, that is what makes them effective as signs. God showed Abraham the stars and said, look at that, now believe me. Look how many there are. Believe me, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God gives us bread and wine and he says, believe me. He gives us broken bread and he says, believe that my son died for you. He gives us poured out wine and he says, believe that his blood was shed for you. God baptizes us with water and says, believe me that I have given you new life in Christ. And if we hear his voice and trust his promises, then we are considered righteous as well. Not by the bread, not by the wine, not by the water, but by faith in the promises of God, who gives us these things to help us remember his one true sign. The sign that is the reality of which the Bible speaks. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. 
And so, brothers and sisters, in a couple of moments, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Receive the bread and wine as a gift from God. Listen to his word in the gospel. And believe. Let's pray.